I'm Peter Kroll, one of the elders. We're looking at Psalm 80. But I'm wondering if you all are as tired as I am. Tired of the virus and the stress and the election and tired of all the protests and the violence. I especially mean that, that last point. Are you tired of all the protests and the violence? I sure am. Not because I think people shouldn't be protesting, but because I believe there are a lot of people who don't have a clue about how to protest. We live in a seriously deluded age where some people think that they will promote lasting change in society by burning down shops and stealing a few appliances. The only thing this accomplishes is to encourage business owners to close up and relocate. Because there's no power in such protest. There's no persuasion. There's no hope for real change. But I think you all know better. That's why you're here today. You may not have even realized this, but this morning, you are participating in an international protest. It is the longest continuous protest in human history. It is a protest that is guaranteed to work. It's guaranteed to change things. You just have to learn how to do it right. You have to learn how to give voice to your objections. You give voice to them at the right time and into the ears of the one person who is able to do something about your objections. That's what this is, this thing we call a worship service. It is a continuous international protest. Our protest this morning goes something like this. You can see in your outlines. We know where to find strength that saves, but we're still being denied the strength that saves. This isn't how it ought to be. That's where we're going this morning in Psalm 80. Let me pray for us. Our Father, please open our eyes and our ears to hear this protest song that you have recorded for us in Scripture. Please help us to learn to voice our objections in a godly way, to bring our protest to you in faith that you can do something about it. Lord, please show us more of yourself today and show us Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen now to the protest song of the children of Israel. Psalm 80. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. 
You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. And we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now this poem divides into three sections. Marked off by the repeated refrain. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. It's in verses 3 and 7 and 19. This refrain serves as the conclusion to each stanza of the poem. So we will analyze the poem according to those three stanzas. First, in verses 1 to 3, we know where to find strength that saves. These people remember the opening line of Psalm 23 with its famous words, The Lord is my shepherd. And so they bring their protest here in verse 1 right to the one that they know as the shepherd of Israel, the one who leads Joseph like a flock, and they ask him to give ear. God, please give us a moment of your time and just hear us out. Now, why do they go to him with their protest? Because the end of verse 1, they know that he is the one enthroned upon the cherubim. He dwells within the temple in Jerusalem, and it has statues inside of it of these crazy supernatural figures, something like sphinxes. We don't know exactly what they looked like. We just know they were called cherubim. And these cherubim, they have wings. We know that about them. And their wings uh, of these statues of these, these creatures, they're, they're spread out in such a way that the people can picture Yahweh, their God, sitting on these statues as on a throne. And so they, they go to him, the one who is enthroned above the cherubim. They go to him knowing that he is the king of heaven and earth. They go to him, verse 2, because they trust that he has unparalleled might. Stir up your might. Now, some historical background would be helpful here for us to understand some of what's going on. The superscript of this song mentions Asaph, uh, that this is of Asaph. Um, that shows us that this poem was written and, and, and sung in the temple in Jerusalem, and that's 
why they're talking about him enthroned on the cherubim. That's a reference to the temple, to the innermost room of the temple. Asaph was the name of one of the great choir directors at the temple during the time of King David. But Asaph started a school of musicians and choir directors who far outlived him for generations. And so notice also that this this poem, the opening verses, they mention uh, one southern tribe in verse 2, the tribe of Benjamin. But they they notice, uh, mentions Joseph in verse 1 and verse 2, Ephraim and Manasseh. These were all the names of northern tribes. Uh, with, with some history of Israel, the, after the time of the great King David, it, his son Solomon reigned. And then after Solomon died, during the reign of his son, the kingdom of Israel, the nation split in half, north and south. It split into two countries. And in this poem, what we're looking at, what we see from these clues here is we have a poem written by southern Jews, primarily about northern Jews. So here's the people in the temple in the southern kingdom, and they're writing this poem about the northern kingdom, about Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh. They were up in the north. One other thing you should know is that in the Greek versions of the Old Testament... The, the, called the Septuagint, uh, that Greek translation of this, the, it has three extra words in the superscript that we don't have in any Hebrew manuscripts. They could be original, could have been added later. We don't exactly know. But these three words, after the words of Asaph, a psalm, it says also, concerning the Assyrian. Concerning the Assyrian. Assyria was the empire that utterly wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. and carried them off. They deported them. And then they, they came up to the gates of Jerusalem during the reign of King Hezekiah and they threatened to do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the point is this. Here's what we can see going on in this poem. Is that the people of Judah have seen what happens when God's people forget God. Assyria comes and wipes them out. So now they go right to God with their song. And these people in the southern kingdom, seeing what happened to the northern kingdom, they ask God to remember them and care for them in the face of the Assyrian threat. Stated succinctly at the end of verse 2, They simply ask him to stir up your might and come to save us. You see, they know where to find the strength that saves. They have gone to the great king, the one who has the strength to save, and they now beg him to employ his strength to save them. How does this apply for us? Well, friends, do you know where to find the strength that saves. Can you see why burning and looting will never produce change? Lasting change? There is no strength in such behaviors. If you could appeal to anyone with your objections, wouldn't you want to appeal to the one person in all the universe who actually has the power to do something to act on your behalf? There is no such strength in Mr. Biden or in Mr. Trump. There is no such strength 
in a Republican Senate or a Democrat House, there is no such strength in more Supreme Court nominees. There is no such strength in your boss or in your dean or in your RA or in your landlord or in your parents. There is no such strength in Facebook or in Instagram. There is no such strength in ice cream or in pornography. Why do we go to these things looking for strength to save us and make things feel better? Why would we go to any one of these things? Not one of these things has the power to save. You know it in your head. I know you do. But do you live it when you are under duress? When you are feeling anxious? Where do you turn to either express your objections or to drown your sorrows? We know where to find strength that saves. The second stanza moves on and it now summarizes the heartbreak of going to the one who has the power to do something for you and finding that he simply won't listen or he won't do what you're asking him to do. This is where they say we're being denied the strength that saves in verses 4 through 7. In verse 4, they ask him, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? In verse 5, they say, you haven't fed us with bread. You have fed us with our own tears. We've got buckets full of tears, God, because you will not save. In verse 6, they say, everyone who sees us is laughing at us because we have staked everything on you and on your might to save us and you have only let us down. Do you see what's happening here? We need to take a few moments to let this sink in. These people have some major objections with how God is treating them. And they are not coming to him in such a way as to try to remove him from his throne and take his place. No, they are not defying him. They are not rebelling against him. They are not making demands. They are not burning down temples. They are not rejecting everything they once believed. No, they are appealing to him. It is because of what they believe about God that they can approach God at all. They believe that he hears their prayers, but he is angry with their prayers. But they know at the same time that he wants to hear their objections. And so they come. And they ask their questions and they offer their objections. You need to understand that this poem is not a protest song arising out of a splinter group of formerly religious people who now seek to undermine faith in the God of Israel. No, it is not. This poem is part of the word of God. This is a prayer of the faithful. This poem is God's word for us. Think about the the grace and mercy of God 
to cause to be inspired and written down and recorded and preserved for us through the ages, a prayer like this, a poem where God himself gives us the words that we can speak back to him when we want to, we wish to voice our objections. We have come to the only God who has the strength to save us And we have found nothing but buckets of tears. Is that how you want it to be, God? Is this in keeping with your promises to us? Is this the reputation you want to have before those who do not trust you like we do? Look at what the people want. Let's look at the the poem's refrain. I skipped verse 3 in the first stanza. Because I wanted to talk about it now. Verse 3, here's the refrain that they keep coming back to. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Do you see what they want? All that they want is for God to stop turning his back to them. They want him to turn his face to them. We don't want to see the back of your head. We want to see your face. We want you to turn and look at us. We want you to restore us to your good favor. We want you to let your face shine on us. This refrain alludes to a special blessing in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. It's a blessing that, that God, through Moses, commanded the high priest to pronounce regularly on the people. In Numbers 6, he says, tell Aaron the priest to to bless the people like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, God told the priest to bless the people that way. And here now, all they're asking God to do is what he has always said he would do. What he told the priests to say he would do. They wish for themselves the same thing God has always wished for them, to see the pleasure and the good favor of his face. They wish for his grace to give them peace. Now, in the, in the first instance of the refrain in verse 3, they, they ask, God, restore us, O God, let your face shine. But look at the second time it comes up, verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. See, they expand his name. Now, he's not just God, but he's God of hosts. And hosts is a fancy religious word that simply means armies. You see, this is where you take your protest to. It's to the God of armies. You command all the strength of heaven. If anyone can save us from the invader, it is you. Lord, deploy your troops, employ your strength, commission the officers and order an attack. How does this apply? Not only do we know where to find the strength that saves, but there are times when it appears we're being denied the strength that saves. One thing we must learn from a poem like this is that there must be space in the Christian life And in the life of the church, in the life of our church, there must be space for lament. God wants his people to be honest with him about what they are suffering. He wants them to be honest about how things look from their perspective. And this is not so they can just get angry and try to get their way, but 
what it does is it opens a door for him to then reveal more of himself to them than they have ever seen before. It creates space for him to shine his face on them in ways that they would never have expected. Friends, it is not a noble thing for Christians to be stoic and unmoved by what's going on in the world. It is not mature for all of our worship services to be filled with happy, upbeat music and uplifting messages. Sometimes we need a season where we just don't sing. Maybe we can't sing. We need to have space to simply ask God to come and save us. We need to to let him know when it feels like he's angry with us. We need to ask him to look and see how his enemies are gaining the upper hand and that we wish he would do something about it. Maybe some of you have occasionally had the kind of week where you weren't even sure you could go to church. Where you thought you had to pretend to be happy as though everything was just great. That's what it means to be a mature Christian, right? Maybe you felt the expectation that maturing as a Christian means that the pain of life doesn't affect you emotionally. Or maybe you've struggled to feel that you're sinning if you struggle with depression or anxiety. Friends, these things are not true. In fact, the Bible gives us the language we need to address these things and to cling to the Lord through them. And this brings us to the heart of our protest. The heart of the protest is that this isn't how it ought to be. Verses 8 through 19. The essence of Christian protest is to reflect to God that what we can see doesn't line up with what we've heard. Let me repeat that. The essence of Christian protest is to reflect to God that what we can see doesn't line up with what we've heard. For example... We have heard that God is strong and mighty to save. But we cannot see him acting as though he is strong and mighty to save. We have heard from his prophets that he will make of Abraham a great nation. But we cannot see him acting to bring about a great nation according to the promise of Abraham. We have heard him say that we ought to desire his face to shine on us, but we can only see his back turned to us. The heart of Christian protest is to reflect these things to God and to remind him that this isn't how it ought to be. To remind him that this is not true to his word and his character. To remind him that this is not consistent with who he has revealed himself to be. Now, please resist the temptation right now to jump to stoic theology and say, we don't need to remind God of anything. He is omniscient and he knows everything. Yes, he does. And that's why we remind him. 
That's why he asks us to remind him. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will there be any faith on the earth? Will he find his people praying for these things? So friends, when life is hard, God does not want his people to become stoics in their theology, quietly murmuring that God is in control and then stuffing up all the pain and misery that they suffer. No, God gives us the words we need to weep with those who weep and to pray like people who know in their bones that he is a God who must be true to his character and to his promises. Their protest consists of two basic questions. Why have you broken us down and when will you turn again? In 8 through 13, they ask, why have you broken us down? They describe the establishment of the kingdom of Israel like a vine, this huge vine that uh, even the mountains uh, were in its shade. Where is that? Verse 10. The mountains were covered with its shade. A vine has to be pretty big in order to cast a shadow on a mountain, right? But they're talking about the nation, the nation that God brought out of Egypt, out of their slavery, and he planted them, and he expanded their kingdom. But what happened? Verses 12 and 13. Why then have you broken down its walls? Now all the passers-by trash our fields, and the boar from the forest ravages it. Probably a reference to Assyria that's come in and has trashed his people. Why have you broken us down? And then second, when will you turn again? They ask God in verse 14 to turn again and look down from heaven. God must first turn toward us. This is before he can restore us. All throughout their refrain, they've been asking, restore us, restore us, restore us. And here, they use the exact same Hebrew word in a different form. That's why it gets translated differently as turn Again, O God of hosts. So before you can turn us, God, you have to turn yourself. Unless God chooses to turn first, our request to be restored is is futile. But, But if God turns and shows us mercy, then just maybe he will turn us back as well to be close to him. So their only hope is for God to do something different. To once again, the end of verse 14, have regard for this vine So to once again regard this vine of Israel, verse 15, to show favor toward the son that he made strong for himself. Verse 17, their only hope is for his hand to be on the man of his right hand, the son of man whom he has made strong for himself. They use this language here of son and son of man, and this is potent language. This is language that the Old Testament uses for the nation of Israel and for its king. In Exodus 4, God told Moses to go to Pharaoh to rescue the Israelites who were in slavery. And he said, go and tell Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. See, this whole nation was God's son. And in Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, God We're told that God sets his king on Zion and then says, you are my son. The king of Israel was the son of God. So at the time this poem was written, Psalm 80, by the time we get here, we know that they thought of themselves as a nation as God's son, and they thought of their king as their representative 
as God's son. And so here they're asking God to raise up a son of strength, to raise up the nation and especially to raise up a king over the nation. They're asking God to raise up a savior among them. They want a king who will make everything right again. And here is where our application must part ways with the application of the original audience who would have read this poem. Because for them, the whole point of this poem was to help them voice their objections and to help them see that they needed a stronger king. Someone who would save them once and for all. And while we still need help with voicing our objections in a godly way, we are not still in need of a stronger king like they were. We just need to be reminded that he already came. We, they looked forward to the Son of Man who would save them in strength, and we look backward upon him. This is why when Paul, the Apostle Paul, is suffering very deeply and he's wondering what God is up to, when what he sees does not match what he has heard about God, here's the counsel he offers in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. See, Paul says, here's, here's how I bring my protest, and I want you to bring the protest. And the, the way we do that is we need to remember Jesus Christ. So when you are suffering from anxiety or persecution or a prolonged epidemic or a stressful election or the confusion of wondering how to best protest what is wrong in the world and you wish that God would only turn his face towards you and let it shine, I encourage you to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Consider a passage like this. From Revelation 1, verses 12 through 18, which speaks of the Lord Jesus. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, when the pain of life won't go away, may we beg God to show us more of Jesus, to shine his face on us like the sun shining in full strength. May we see that face blazing that we may trust that he truly has our best interests in mind. 
And as we voice our objections, we do so coming to the one person that we know is able to do something about it. And maybe we come to him for the first time. If you have never called on Christ, if you have never followed him, now is the time. Or maybe perhaps you get to do this for the millionth time this week. But let us keep praying like this. Let us sing more songs like this that we may give voice to our objections. In Jesus, we know where to find strength that saves. At times, it appears we are being denied the strength that saves. We know this isn't how it ought to be. And because Jesus reigns as king in power, it will not remain like this forever. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, O shepherd of Israel, please give ear to your people. You shepherd us like a flock. And Lord, as we look around, we see your vineyard broken down and trampled. And we beg of you to let your face shine, to show us more of Jesus. Please have regard for this vine which is your people. Strengthen Jesus that his will may be done on earth as in heaven. And Lord, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved.